Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Justin Lay Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. Relationships are hard for everyone, but they can be especially hard for people living with mental health issues, such as depression, anxiety, or obsessive compulsive disorder. For example, they can sometimes lead people to sabotage perfectly good relationships, such as by obsessively worrying about and fighting over very minor details, or even things that might not actually represent real relationship problems. Mental health struggles can also heighten anxiety around online dating, sex, and breakup in ways that can make relationships feel inherently unsatisfying, even hopeless. But there is hope, and plenty of help available. Today, we're going to be talking all about how mental health intersects with sex, dating, and relationships. We're going to explore some of the ways that mental health issues can pose unique relationship challenges, but also consider practical tips and tools for overcoming them. I am joined by Allison Raskin, a New York Times bestselling author, actress, director, and co-creator of the YouTube comedy channel and podcast, Just Between Us, which she shares with her comedy partner, Gabby Dunn. Allison is also a mental health advocate and is currently working on her master's in psychology at Pepperdine University. Her latest book is titled Overthinking About You, Navigating Romantic Relationships When You Have Anxiety, OCD, and or Depression. I'm really looking forward to this important conversation, and we're going to jump in right after the break. Studies show that as many as one in three men say they don't last as long in bed as they'd like to. Fortunately, there's a solution for this, and it's called Promescent. Promescent is a topical spray that boosts sexual stamina through temporary desensitization. Promescent is customizable for your body, and when used as directed, it won't transfer to your partner. Use it alone or in combination with other techniques for faster, more reliable results. Check it out, and you'll see why thousands of physicians and sexual health providers recommend it. Promescent offers a 60-day money-back guarantee, free shipping on orders over $10, and discreet shipping to guarantee privacy. Learn more and place an order at promescent.com. That's P-R-O-M-E-S-C-E-N-T dot com. Hi, Allison, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for joining me. It's a pleasure to speak with you. Your latest book, Overthinking About You, is all about the intersection of mental health with sex, dating, and relationships. And I think this is such an important topic, and it's one that I haven't really covered extensively on the show yet. So I really love that we have the opportunity to dive into it today. And I think a good starting point for this conversation is to explore your own journey a little bit, because that was a big source of inspiration for the book. And you've been very open about your own mental health struggles and how they've impacted your relationships. So can you tell us a little bit about that and specifically how mental health issues such as anxiety, depression, or OCD can make starting or maintaining healthy relationships more challenging? Yeah, definitely. I, I'm someone who actually was diagnosed with OCD when I was only four years old. So the mental health of it all has been a constant in my life for as long as I can remember. And for me, romantic relationships were always my biggest trigger. Like nothing could upset my mental stability faster or more intensely than romantic rejection, heartbreak, feeling not safe in a relationship, this need to find a partner to feel like 
I had value, to feel like I was normal, to feel like I was whole. And so I really struggled for many, many years to to date in a healthy way. Like I was definitely someone who was texting too much, calling too much, who would ruminate and ruminate and not be able to just like relax in a relationship and accept that things were okay. I felt like I needed certainty. So I needed to like, where is this relationship going? How can I lock this down instead of like, oh, I'm 24. Maybe I don't need to get married right now. (laughs) (laughs) And so, you know, for years, it was really a, a, a big struggle in my life. And then I'd say in like my late 20s, so a few years ago, I realized that I was suddenly engaging in dating in a different way than before. It wasn't as triggering to me. I was able to handle the discomfort of uncertainty around it much better. I didn't feel like I, I needed all of the answers right away around everything. And I was like, oh, wow. <laughs> this is exciting. This is wonderful. You know, like I didn't really necessarily think that that sort of change was, was possible for me. And I realized that it would probably be valuable to maybe share that that journey is possible. And then it really started this examination of, you know, what had changed for me? Why was I suddenly able to not act out in relationships in the way that I had before? And I think it was a combination of a lot of different factors, but One of the main ones was really building up my self-esteem and building up my relationship with myself. And then also being able to recognize that things were at play, like my anxiety and my OCD. And that it's not that that it was that I, Allison, am a bad dater. It was, oh, my (laughs) mental disorders that I interfere with the rest of my life are also interfering with this part of my life. (laughs) And so just like even that acknowledgement and that self-awareness, I think also really helped. And then gaining the language to be able to talk about uh, my disorders with potential partners, you know, being able to better articulate how my OCD shows up in my life so that when I tell somebody to like, take their shoes off. It's not because I think they're a disgusting human being who I'm judging. It's because I have a mental illness that like, can't tolerate you walking around with your shoes on, you know, like, just these small reframes and this small ability to communicate better really helped. And so I wanted to sort of share that journey. But I also realized that it was very individual, you know, while I think sharing our stories is so important. We all have different contexts. And so when I started working on the book, I really wanted to build it out so that it would be applicable to to a lot of different people. And that's why I really brought in the mental health experts, the dating coaches, different couples, just gives it more credibility, gives it more professional lens because I'm not a licensed therapist. So I sort of view myself as like the mediator between the experts and, and the non-experts, you know, like I'm sort of like let me funnel through what I've learned and through my experience. And so it's more accessible for everybody. And that's sort of the the creation and, and thought behind the book. Well, I love that. Thank you for sharing all of that information. I appreciate you being open and vulnerable. And I also love that you share the story of inspiration that yes, you can struggle with these things, but there is hope. There are ways to deal with these issues so that you don't have to live a life without the loving, satisfying relationship or relationships that you want. Now, I know there are a ton of self-help books out there already on relationships. There are a ton on mental health, 
but very little that does what your book does, where it explores the intersection of these two areas. We know mental health can obviously have this huge impact on how you navigate sex and dating and relationships. So why do you think there's that disconnect? You know, why is it that there aren't many other resources out there for exploring this area? I honestly don't know. I mean, I think to be a writer and to have one idea that's never been done before is like more than I could have asked for. <laughs> like, I think I just got really lucky that I just kind of discovered this underserviced area for, and it really is at least my knowledge, the first book that like explicitly examines these two things. And I think that we have gotten so much better as a society about talking about mental health and talking about, you know, I have anxiety, I go to therapy, you know, my friend is suffering from depression, but it's all very broad strokes. And I don't think that we necessarily get into the nitty gritty of like, okay, but what does that mean? How does that show up for you every day? And how is that impacting your relationships? And so a big part of my goal for the book is just to get the conversation started. Like, I, I hope that there's even more and more resources about this, you know, moving forward. I hope so, too. The only other episode I can think of of this show where we kind of explored this intersection between mental health and relationships was very early on. I did an episode with Dr. Ari Tuckman about his book on ADHD and sex and relationships and how living with ADHD, the way you navigate sex and relationships can be very different. And so I love that your book is an extension that looks more broadly at anxiety and OCD and some of these other mental health issues, because it's just a much needed area. It's surprising that there's really so little out there about it. Now, in your book, you talk about your own personal experience, but you also weave in the insights from psychologists and other experts, and you provide a lot of practical information and action steps for readers. So let's explore some of those tips. I think a good place to start is by looking at how you even bring up the subject of mental health with someone that you're dating or in a relationship with. And I'm thinking about how just bringing up the subject of sex can bring a lot of shame and anxiety and embarrassment and fear into the equation that holds a lot of people back. And I think a lot of people have those same sorts of feelings about bringing up mental health. So what are some of the ways that you might recommend for starting these difficult conversations? Yeah, I mean, I think the first step is to acknowledge that it is difficult, right? To like, give yourself the compassion that what you're about to do is scary, it's vulnerable. And the fact that you feel discomfort around it isn't a weakness. It's like, makes sense, <laughs> you know, like, so I think for me in my life, whenever I acknowledge that what I'm about to do is hard, it makes it easier to do it because I'm not preventing myself from doing it. I'm honoring and and I'm being proud of myself for, for pushing forward. So I think instead of being like, oh, why do I feel discomfort around this being like, of course, I feel discomfort around this. And now that I've acknowledged that, how do I move forward and do it in the safest and most successful way possible? And so I really think that we don't give enough thought to the environment in which we have important conversations. So making sure that you're not like sharing your your history of like mental illness, maybe your history of suicidality, maybe some really big traumas in a crowded restaurant 
right? Or like right when your date walked in the door and you haven't even said hello yet. You really want to like set yourself up for success when these difficult conversations. So doing it in an atmosphere that is more calm, I would probably recommend inside one of your homes just because then you're not worried about other people overhearing you. You have the time and energy to like get into a discussion if it becomes a bigger discussion. And also a lot of thought to what energy are you bringing to this disclosure? Because even though a lot of Americans are very direct in their communication, as humans, we really perceive body language in a big way, I think more than people think that they do, right? So if you're coming to this conversation, a nervous ball of energy, and you word vomit out every single detail of your mental health history, that potential partner isn't just taking in like the verbal information that you're giving them. They're also taking in your body language and your energy, right? And so if you can get to a place where you can sort of disclose this important information about yourself a bit more calmly, a bit more like you have a little more control over it and that you are just letting them know some important things about you instead of that you're releasing a bomb onto them and you're waiting to see how they're going to respond, right? So if you can really think about getting to a place where, you know, you're able to sort of like give the rundown. I don't think that you need to get into all of the specifics right away. But I do think if you're moving forward with someone and it's becoming more serious to sort of let them know the basics, let them know that this is a part of your life. And it can be really helpful, I think, to role play these conversations, to have a test run with a trusted friend or family member, just so that you've said the words out loud before, and that you're not, you know, if you're someone that gets nervous in the moment that you have that backup of like, oh, I've done this before, even if it was just to your sibling or a friend. I think that's all great advice. And it's similar in a lot of ways to the advice I give to people on sharing sexual fantasies, which is another topic where there's often a lot of feelings of shame and embarrassment. And so yes, definitely choosing the right time and place is crucial. <laughs> and, you know, choosing how you're going to frame this releasing information sort of in a progressive way, because you know, that's how self disclosure works best is when it's mutual reciprocal, and it sort of builds over time, as opposed to just getting everything out there all at once, it can just be too much information. So it's something that you need to take your time with, build up the, the strength to get comfortable with that discomfort and, and get it out there and have that conversation. Now, something you discuss in the book that I think is so important is that people living with mental health issues may sometimes have trouble identifying whether a concern they have about their partner or their relationship is a valid relationship concern or a symptom of their disorder. So in other words, is this really a toxic relationship that you need to exit? Or is this the anxiety or OCD leading you to perseverate on something that's unhelpful, such as worrying about the relationship not being perfect, when in reality, there's no such thing as a perfect relationship. So what are some ways that you can sort of separate out the valid relationship concerns from the symptoms of the disorder? It's a great question. Like there's, I think there's also a difference between toxic relationships and relationships where you just are thinking, is this right? You know, because I think with toxicity, there are some like clear boundaries of like what, you know, emotional abuse, physical abuse, things that, that really are, if, if this is happening in a relationship, you do need to end it. But I think what's really tricky is those relationships that are fine 
you know, like there isn't, there isn't anything where if you told your friend what was going on, they would be like, Oh my God, that's not healthy. It's more just these worries of like, is this right enough? Is this, am I settling? Am I, is this, is, are we compatible enough? And, you know, anxiety and OCD in particular really love to ask you that question over and over and over again. So something that can really help you is to be very clear on what kind of relationship you do want. Because if you know what kind of relationship you want, then you can see if these concerns are actually issues that you've made a priority, or if it's more just like, I don't like their genes, <laughs> you know, and then like wondering if you can be with someone who you don't like their genes for the next 40 years. And so sitting down with yourself and making an actual list of what do I need? You know, what are my deal breakers? And then what and this is a, a part that I think we don't necessarily talk about enough. What would I like, but isn't necessary, <laughs> you know, like, and, and that can go both ways of like, what would I find annoying, but isn't a deal breaker, you know? So like, for me, I don't really care about sports and my ideal partner, my partner also wouldn't care about sports because that means that then I would never have to watch sports, <laughs> But my current partner loves baseball and watches baseball and loves baseball and loves to talk about baseball. And honestly, that's fine. Like, I love that he likes something like that. I love that he's passionate about it. Do I want to spend all of my time watching baseball? No, but we don't do that. You know, like he'll watch in another room or he I'll go to a game here and there, but I'm not going to 20 games a season. <laughs> but if I was looking for a perfect partner, my partner wouldn't be a sports fan. But actually, the reality of dating a sports fan is perfectly fine and actually kind of fun and like adds an element to my life. So then when you have these concerns, it's sitting down with yourself and saying, now, is this something that my partner could actually address? Is the problem that when I tell them something, they don't ask any questions? And so I feel like I'm not heard. That feels like something that is worth bringing up to your partner. But the anxiety OCD thoughts are, are more things like, do I love them enough? These kinds of questions that like, you maybe won't. That, that the answer isn't even possible, that you're like trying to judge your relationship on something that like is more the myth of what relationship should be versus the reality. So when it's like tangible worries, like they stay out till four in the morning. Do I want to be with someone who stays out till four in the morning? Probably not. But if it's more like, do I, you know, do I want to have sex with them enough? Enough is not a real thing. <laughs> Because every relationship has different boundaries, has different, you know, intimacy levels, people have different sex drives. So anything that gets caught up in like, right, quote, unquote, right, in terms of like, the broad idea of how all relationships should be, that to me signals it's more anxiety, OCD thoughts, where if it's tangible stuff that like, if you brought it up to your partner, they could potentially change their behavior to, to better fit you and your life together, then that's something that's worth bringing up. I think that's all great advice. And I love the way that you put all of this where, you know, if you're thinking about your relationship in terms of these comparisons to societal or other standards, and, you know, whether or not your relationship meets the criteria for being an epic love or something like that, you know, that's something that you're, as you said, you're never really going to have the answer to. 
And I think you're so right that every relationship is going to have some mix of what we call deal breakers and deal makers, right? So <laughs> your preferred and less preferred traits, right? There's always going to be some give and take there. And if you're striving for perfection where there are only deal makers and no deal breakers, you know, that's probably an unrealistic way to approach relationships and make it very difficult to find love or, or lasting love. Now, we know that mental health issues can impact sex, dating, and relationships, which is why it's important to address those issues. However, mental health treatment sometimes creates a whole other set of problems in the relationship. So, for example, a lot of medications for depression can potentially cause sexual side effects, such as loss of desire, difficulty becoming or staying aroused, and difficulty having an orgasm. So there's a trade-off, right? You're fixing one issue but creating another. So how do you think people can better navigate this? How do you take care of both your mental health and the relationship at the same time? It's tricky. And I think, again, it's about reframing our idea of what a successful relationship looks like, right? So if, if your only idea of a successful relationship is that you're having sex every single day and you're, you're desiring your partner all of the time, at the detriment of your own mental health, <laughs> then you're going to be in a bit of a pickle, right? But if instead you're able to say, the best way for me to show up in this relationship is for me to be in a mentally stable place. And in order for me to be in a mentally stable place, I currently, or maybe even long-term, need to be on medication. And it's so important if you're someone who has mental health struggles to be with a partner who understands that. You need to be with someone who is going to value your internal life as much as they value your shared sex life. Honestly, I think value your internal life even more. And so also a big part of the issue is this hyperfixation we have in society about sex and intimacy looking only one way, that it is penetration that ends in mutual orgasm. And so that very narrow view makes it really difficult for people who are, you know, suffering from these sexual side effects to feel like they're engaging in intimacy in their relationship, even though intimacy can take so many different forms. And there are so many different ways that you can work out with your partner, things that are mutually beneficial and satisfying to both of you, even if that doesn't involve an erection or an orgasm. And, and I think both partners can still be satisfied. It's just having to have those conversations of our sex life might look a little different than what we were told in the movies. But if we're able to communicate and be open and honest and still have closeness, then it can be even better because guess what? I'm not depressed. <laughs> and so, and I'm not an anxious mess and I can enjoy the 90% of our relationship that isn't sex in the first place. I think that's all great advice. And I think there's something else you mentioned in the book about this that's really valuable, which is, you know, working with your treatment provider to find the right treatment approach for you for this particular time in your life. And so, mm -hmm. for example, with a medication for depression, it might not be the case that you're going to start this medication and be on it for the rest of your life. Maybe you're just going to be on it 
temporarily short term because you're going through a more extreme bout of depression, but then you're going to couple that with other treatments like cognitive behavioral therapy, and you're going to do these other things in your relationship where you expand the definition of sex. And so if you think about it through this multimodal lens and you work with your doctor and or a sex therapist, you can figure it out, get the treatment plan that's right for you so you can minimize the impact of any potential medication side effects. Now, we have much more to discuss, including how you can learn to break up better, tips for better sex and online dating, and how you can most effectively support a partner with mental health struggles. But first, a quick break for a word from our sponsors. Looking to become a certified sex educator, counselor, or therapist? Check out the Modern Sex Therapy Institutes. MSTI offers certifications in sex therapy, LGBTQIA affirmative therapy, alternative relationships, and more as well as a PhD program in clinical sexology. All programs can be completed 100% online and are flexible and customizable to meet the needs and schedules of even the busiest participants. You can take live courses the third weekend of each month and choose from over 300 archived workshops taught by renowned experts in the field. For more information, visit modernsextherapyinstitutes.com. That's modernsextherapyinstitutes.com. Let's talk about sex for a moment. Mental health issues like depression and anxiety can absolutely interfere with having good sex. For example, they can lead you to be more in your head during the sex, and you can be thinking about problems instead of experiencing pleasure. So how can you deal with this issue and avoid letting anxiety and worry totally kill the mood? I think this is something I'm still, you know, working on. I think it's an ongoing process but for me to understand that you're not broken, that like it makes sense for your anxiety to interfere in that part of your life as well. That like I think sometimes we think that sex is so completely removed from the rest of the human experience that the rules don't apply, but they do apply. <laughs> so if you're an anxious person, you're probably also maybe going to be anxious in the bedroom. And so like first accepting that and then you know, working with yourself, what are some ways that it, it does make it easier for me to be present in the moment? Maybe that is, you know, playing music, something that like kind of helps you focus on something else other than your thoughts. I think that depending on where you live, weed can actually be really helpful in that experience. But also not holding yourself to a standard that's unrealistic for you, that every single time you should be completely connected and in the moment and your anxiety shouldn't be at play at all, or you're bad at this, you know, like recognizing that some days are going to be a little trickier than others, that maybe your anxiety will pop up at the beginning of an encounter and then kind of dissipate in the middle and then come back, you know, but just really allowing yourself the freedom to to experience it in different ways and and for every day to sort of feel a little bit different and i think the more that you can you know openly communicate with your partner about these things and then also if it is something you're really struggling with i think sex therapists can be a really helpful resource and i think a lot of people think that a sex therapist means you're going into a session and having sex in front of a third party <laughs> And that's not what sex therapy nope. is like. And so it seems really scary and weird and uncomfortable. But like sex therapy is pretty much just talk therapy with maybe some exercises that you would do at home in private. So just normalizing that as a as a resource, I think, is also really helpful. 
Yeah. And this is one of the most common issues that sex therapists deal with is that inability to be present, to be in the moment during sex. And so there's lots of practical things that they can suggest or try or prescribe that can help. And mindfulness training is one of the big ones. And there's a great book I love to recommend by Dr. Lori Brado called Better Sex Through Mindfulness that can walk you through how to practice mindfulness-based techniques in your everyday life, bring that skill over into the bedroom and learn to be present during sex so that you don't have all of those distracting thoughts. But I think you're also so right that a big part of this is just about not being too hard on yourself. And I, I think that's where a lot of these problems come in as we judge ourselves so much. We're, we're our own harshest critics. And so we have to learn to accept that, yep, there's going to be variability. You're going to have some good days and some bad days, but here are things you can do to work on it, to make sure that there are more good days than there are bad days. Yeah, one of my favorite pieces of advice from Dr. Jess O'Reilly, uh, who's a sexologist who I interviewed for the book, was she was like, really just try to let yourself experience pleasure in all areas of your life. You know, like, I think that we often like don't just like give in to the pleasure of like ice cream or like a really good muffin or you know or like a hot shower like the more that you can just sort of like connect to these um tangible moments of pleasure outside of the bedroom it can be a little easier to then be in the moment and connect to them inside the bedroom i love that and i love dr jess she is a previous guest on this podcast and has Lots of great information that she always shares and so many good sex tips. So let's talk about dating next. I, like many of my followers, have experience with online dating. And a common part of online dating is that you'll sometimes message someone and then there's this really long delay before they respond and sometimes they never respond at all. And for me, that wasn't something that ever caused me to freak out because my view was that, you know, there could be any number of reasons why that person didn't respond. It doesn't necessarily mean anything personal, but I've also had the experience of me myself getting super busy, falling behind on messaging, just not having the energy for it. And then when I come back on, I find this long string of messages where the other person has just spiraled and they've taken it very personally and it's brimming with anxiety. So the reality of online dating is that you're sometimes going to get ghosted, unfortunately. Sometimes people won't reply on your desired timetable for various reasons. So how can you avoid catastrophizing when these things happen and kind of keep that anxiety in check so that you're not spiraling out every time somebody isn't responding immediately when you send them a message? One of the best tips I can give for dating that seems like it doesn't make any sense is that you can't take a lot of things personally, which is so strange because how can you not take dating personally? They're dating you. But the reality is like until you're in a pretty significant relationship with another person, you really don't have a good sense of their context. You don't know what is going on with them on a daily basis. You, like you said, you don't know, maybe they're really busy at work. Maybe they're in the middle of a depressive episode. Like I, you know, I had a friend recently who was struggling to connect with someone, but he shared that his insomnia has been back. And so he's not engaging in dating the way he was when he was sleeping better. And so the more that you can just not jump to conclusions and not fill in the blanks, the better you're going to be able to go about doing this, right? Because we all like to think that we are the main character, that everything that happens is in direct relation to us and a direct response to who we are and what we've done. But the reality is 
you're only your own main character. <laughs> Everyone else is living their life and you kind of come in and out of it. And so the best thing you can do is to resist that urge to fill in the blanks and instead view dating as an opportunity to gather information about another person. And then you get to decide if that information is compatible with what you're looking for. And if so, you put in effort to move forward. But in these really early stages, they're not even rejecting you because they don't even know you, right? Like if someone stops replying to you after three texts on a dating app, what could they possibly be rejecting because they have no sense of who you are? So like releasing yourself from that and instead just seeing it all as just like an, an information gathering time, not jumping to these conclusions and realizing that you deserve someone who communicates well. You deserve someone who makes this process easy for you. And if this person isn't making it easy for you and is instead provoking anxiety, then it's probably best for you to just step away because the more that you have experiences of dating as anxiety producing, as making you feel bad about yourself, the less you're going to want to date. So it's really important to set yourself up for success by spending your time and energy in ways that don't make you feel bad about yourself. Oh, I love that so much. You described that so well. <laughs> and you. I think that that's, that's just a really useful way of thinking about online dating. You know, most of us never really learn much about how to date at all, let alone how to date online. And so we're left to figure it out entirely on our own. And it's kind of this mysterious thing. And we're not prepared for the sheer number of interactions that we might have with other people and the number of them that might not go anywhere and how frequently we're going to experience ghosting and these other sorts of things. And if you take every interaction incredibly personally and always imagine it, that it means like the worst possible thing, online dating is going to be this miserable experience where you're probably going to give up very quickly or just never have a good time. So it's, it's really important to have the right cognitive framing when approaching online dating. Definitely. And like, you know, why wouldn't you burn out if you were wasting time on every bad person? <laughs> of course, you're going to burn out. But if instead of you date productively, then you're setting yourself up for more success because you're you're reserving your energy for people that are worth your energy. Yeah, absolutely. Save the energy for when it's really needed. Now, not all relationships work out. Sometimes they come to an end and that decision can be mutual or it can be one-sided. Either way, breakups can be really rough, and they can be especially rough if you're struggling with something like depression or anxiety to begin with. But there are healthy and unhealthy ways to handle a breakup. So can you share with us some tips on better navigating breakups? Yeah, so I actually um, experienced the most significant breakup of my life while I was writing this book. Um, I got engaged and um, was very excited to finally be moving forward in that part of my life. And then my fiance walked out on me six months later with pretty much no explanation. So I was given someone with an anxious mind's worst case scenario where he abruptly left and all he told me was something is missing. So in that moment, I had the option to blame myself. 
I had the option to fill in what that something was and to fill it in with every insecurity I've ever had about myself, every fear, every part of myself that I'm not proud of and say, well, that's it. Now I know I, I'm a piece of shit. I'm the reason that he left. I'm all of these things. But, you know, through the process of writing this book and, and through just all the work I've done on my own, I really didn't do that. <laughs> like, I didn't take this opportunity as an excuse to beat myself up and, and tear myself down. And instead, I recognized that I was in a moment where I needed to be a friend to myself. I needed nurturing and care. And I needed to hold my own hand while I while I process this enormous grief that I was feeling because you will always feel grief when you lose a relationship that is important to you. But what you don't need to do on top of that is attack yourself. And those are like two very different things. I mean, sometimes there are some takeaways that you can have from a breakup, you know, especially if they're very clear with you about the reasons. And let's say the reason is, you know, you are not a good listener, right? So like if somebody tells you that when they're breaking up with you, you can say, okay, that's valuable information that I can examine and bring with me into my next relationship. But for a lot of breakups, you're not really getting that kind of clear guidance or information. And instead, all you can really do is look at how you behaved, say, Am I proud of how I behaved? Are there some things I can learn, some takeaways I can do? And then how do I move forward? And I think that the thing that really saved me after my broken engagement was prioritizing myself and not prioritizing this person that no longer wanted to be a part of my life. Because I could obsess about what he's doing, how he's feeling, what his future is, who he's with now, all of these things. But he chose to leave. So why do I want to give any more of my time and energy than necessary to this person who's no longer a part of my life when I'm going to be a part of my life forever? So let me fuel that energy and that nurture into myself. And I think that that really helped me. So recognizing where your thoughts are going and are they unnecessarily cruel? And also letting go of this idea that like, if you just figure out why they left, then suddenly it will be okay. Because we never really know why. Sometimes we know, but I'd say that's maybe 10% of the time, you know, like, and, and letting go of the idea that like, quote, unquote, closure is what you need to move on. And instead, it's self compassion, and time is what you need to move on. And what's really wonderful is that you can give those things to yourself. Whereas when we look from closure for other people, we're not in control of that. And I think closure can be overrated in a lot of ways, because in that search for closure, you invest so much time and energy in trying to figure out what this answer was. And as an analogy, I'm thinking about how I used to have a very strong need for closure, especially, you know, when watching like a television series or something. And it's like, I've started, I'm a few seasons in, like, for example, with The Walking Dead, I think I made it to about season seven. And I was like, I just, I can't do this anymore. Like, I want to know what's going to happen to all these characters in the end, but I can't keep dumping this mental energy into this relationship with this show that is going nowhere and is frustrating me. And so I just stepped out and said, nope, 
I don't need to know what actually happens. So I, I think you can sort of apply that same sort of thinking to a relationship. You don't always need to know the answer and you might never be satisfied with the answer because the closure might not come or it might not be the answer that you're looking for. So closure can be overrated. And then letting yourself feel the feelings of sadness and of loss. I don't think you need to feel the feelings of I'm a horrible person and I'm never and I'm not lovable and I'll never find anyone again. Those feelings are just thoughts and they're not helpful. But to really sit and process, oh, I'm deeply hurt. Like I'm grieving something that was really important to me. And so of course this is going to feel bad and yucky. But the more that you can just let those feelings flow through you and process them and realize that you are strong enough to endure them, then I think you recover so much faster than when you, you know, apply a, a small bandaid to a gaping wound by, you know, rushing out to find someone else really quickly or focusing on revenge or, you know, like just letting yourself recognize, oh, this is one of the hardest parts of being human but it's also a crucial part of being human. And there's no weakness or problem with experiencing these emotions, feeling them and acknowledging them. This is reminding me a lot of how when we teach mindfulness practices to people, it's about non-judgmental present moment awareness. And so you're recognizing, acknowledging those thoughts, those emotions that are coming in, but you're being kind to yourself and not judging yourself. So I think that's so important when dealing with all of this. Now, we've talked a lot about what to do when you're the one experiencing mental health issues in a relationship, but what if it's your partner instead? How can you best be a supportive partner to them? And are there any things that you should do and things that you shouldn't do in this case? <laughs> There's a lot of things you, you shouldn't do. <laughs> you know, I think <laughs> if you're being supportive of someone who is going through, you know, mental health struggles. Robin Gibbs, she's a clinical psychologist and also my mom's best friend. And she has this lovely metaphor where she says, you know, the person with the disorder is the primary caregiver. And then the partner is the secondary caregiver, right? So you should never take on your partner's mental health struggles as your responsibility. You are there to help them handle it. And so the best way to go about doing that is to ask them, how can I best help you handle this, right? Because all of these disorders manifest completely differently in different people. And so even if you maybe have anxiety and your partner is having an anxiety attack, you might think, oh, well, when I have anxiety, I like to go for a run. But your partner might like to take a nap, right? And so you saying, let's go for a run. Let's go for a run. Let's burn off that energy. They might be like, you're not listening to me. When I'm anxious, I need to unwind, I need to be calm, I need to be alone. And so having these very direct conversations of what kind of support is actually helpful to you versus what kind of support do I think you should need or that I would want. You know, there's that great saying, people will say, you know, treat others how you want to be treated. And one of my professors has always said, you know, treat others how they want to be treated. <laughs> And I think that that's so true, especially in this situation. But I also think that, you know, when you're in a more serious relationship, you might actually notice that they are not doing well before they do. And so I do think that it is fine to say, hey, 
I'm noticing that maybe like your anxiety seems a little heightened than normal. Does that feel true to you? Right. So instead of like making these assumptions, asking questions so that you can see if they're receptive to what you're saying and then being like, what what helped last time when this was happening? You know, and then they might say, oh, I, I guess I took a day off of work. And so then you can say, oh, maybe it makes sense to take a day off of work now or letting them guide the journey while you're like in the passenger seat, kind of rooting them on instead of feeling like you need to take the car away from them. I think that's great advice. And you make a really important point about how anxiety, depression, these other mental health issues can manifest very differently in different people. And I'm thinking about how, for example, you know, we often think about stress and anxiety as decreasing libido and making people not as interested in sex. But for some people, it has precisely the opposite effect. And when they're the most stressed and anxious or depressed, they're actually the most sexually active because sex becomes this coping tool or a way of relieving stress. So it's important to recognize and understand that your partner might respond to these mental states in very, very different ways. And maybe if you both have some of these mental health issues, you might respond in drastically different mm -hmm. ways from one another. So it's finding out how to understand each other. And, you know, in cases where there are discrepancies, finding a way to, to bridge them that is healthy and mutually agreeable. Definitely. And to not, again, going back to not taking it personally, right? Because if your partner has told you, when I'm stressed out, I don't like to have sex, then suddenly when they don't want to have sex, when they're stressed out, it's not a reflection of you in your relationship. It's just how they operate. But if you don't have those conversations, then it can be really easy to attach meaning that isn't there. Absolutely. The value of cognitive framing. It is so important for sex, relationships, and dating. Now, I know we're running short on time, but I have one more question for you, which is about the ending of your book on how to not give up on love and relationships. Mental health struggles can make relationships feel hopeless at times, that you're never going to find what you want, that the relationship is never going to last, and that you're inevitably going to get hurt. So what do you want people with mental health issues to know about this, and why shouldn't they just give up? The big thing I want people to walk away from is that you deserve to go after what you want, right? Nobody would look at you and say, oh, you have depression, you shouldn't try to get the career that you want. Or you have anxiety, you shouldn't try to have a child if you want to have a child. Wanting a life partner, at least to me, is very much just like a lifestyle choice. And people are entitled to have the lifestyle that they want to have. And so the first thing is just accepting if I want this thing, I am allowed to go after it. <laughs> like I am allowed to put in time and energy to make my life look the way that I want my life to look. And also that you deserve it, right? A lot of times people who've been through these struggles, they actually end up making wonderful partners because they've had to do all of this work on themselves and had to do all of this introspection and understanding and compassion towards themselves that they can then apply to their relationship. And so I find that people who've been in therapy are often, you know, some of the best partners because <laughs> they've, you know, they've been in the thick of it. They know what it is like to go through a hard time. And when you're in a relationship, you're going to go through hard times. And so to go through it with somebody who's already been there and survived it and gotten themselves out of it, that's a strength. And so, like you said, to, to reframe all of these past struggles as 
yes, they were struggles, but they were also successes because you're not in that place anymore. And yes, you might go back to that place, but you got out once, you'll get out again, you'll get out the fifth time. And so seeing that like this work that you put in on yourself or that you're in the process of putting in on yourself will actually translate to stronger relationships, I think maybe makes it a little less scary. And also having the confidence that you can survive the heartbreak. And I think that that was a huge takeaway for me that I was able to survive major heartbreak and still continue to pursue love because I wanted it. And I'm allowed to want that. And the best way that I can honor myself in my life is to go after what I want instead of letting past experiences prevent me from thriving. I love that so much. You said so many important things there. And there is hope, you know, and it's also reminding me how a lot of friends I have on social media frequently make posts about how, you know, what my biggest turn on is when they tell me they're in therapy, mm -hmm. right? So when people are taking control of themselves, their destiny and working on issues that they're experiencing, that can be something that instead of being a weakness is really a strength and it can be a turn on and can actually make you much more attractive in the light of other people. So just something to think about yet another cognitive reframe. <laughs> so thank you so much for this amazing conversation, Allison. It was truly a pleasure to have you here. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work, listen to your podcast and get a copy of your new book, Overthinking About You? Yes. So Overthinking About You is basically available anywhere books are sold. I love when people support their indie bookstores. I know that The Strand in New York does ship internationally. And then in terms of all my other stuff, you can find me at Allison Raskin. And then my mental health focused Instagram and Substack are both called Emotional Support Lady. And I also have a weekly podcast called Just Between Us. Thank you so much. And thanks for being our Emotional Support Lady. Oh, thank you so much. So thank you again for your time. I really appreciate having you here. Also, thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of this podcast, visit my website, Sex and Psychology at sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on your favorite platform where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on social media for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Laymiller and Instagram at Justin J. Laymiller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want, and Allison's book, Overthinking About You. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.